You're listening to Human Rights Talks, organized by the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. So welcome to your Twitter space on Russia's abduction of Ukrainian children. My name is Marie Lamanche. I work at the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. We're based at Concordia. Um, I'm very happy today to welcome Aliona Lifko. Uh, she is a political consultant and former Ukrainian MP. Welcome, Aliona. Hi, Marie. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Greetings from London. And Nathaniel Raymond is, uh, or Raymond, if we say the Québécois, is the executive director of the Humanitarian Research Lab at um, Yale Law School of Public Health. Nathaniel, uh, Nathaniel and his team co-wrote a report on the abduction of Ukrainian children that was published back in February. Um, perhaps I'd like to start with Nathaniel here. Um, could you perhaps summarize some of the key findings of the report that you published and, and why uh, the abduction that we're, we saw or we're still seeing perhaps is, is systematic or systemic, really? So the headline uh, of our report is that there is a whole of government activity by Russia to forcibly deport and transfer uh, children from Ukraine. And there's really, uh, I'll go into what the difference is between deportation and transfer in a second, but there's really four groups of kids uh, in our report really is about two of those groups of kids. Uh, The first group are kids primarily from Luhansk and Donetsk who have gone to re-education camps, uh, including in two cases, camps for military training. And we see that in Chechnya and Crimea. Uh, We identify about 41 of these re-education camps. We think the number is significantly higher, maybe even double the number in our report. Uh, The second group are kids that are referred to often by Uh, Russia as the evacuees, which were children that were in Ukrainian state uh, institutions that were then moved by Russia into Russia from Ukraine when Russia took over those facilities uh, early on in the invasion. And that was primarily in Kharkiv, Mariupol, Zaporizhia, um, and Kherson. The third and fourth groups are really Um, about kids that got picked up by Russia in the uh, basically in the conduct of combat operations. And then in the fourth group, it's those that may have been separated from their parents during filtration, particularly in Donetsk. And filtration was the process after Russia occupied areas of trying to separate out um, those who were considered threats to Russian occupation versus those who would accept it. Um, the, the really critical finding in our report is that at least 6,000 children went through the re-education camp system. Um, we think that number is significantly higher. The Ukrainian government, after our report came out, uh, put out a number around 16,000. Uh, and, and that number, we think, is, is just specific to those who had come from the institutions. Um, We identify in two cases um, locations that appear to be involved specifically in the transfer element, which is uh, forced adoption and fostering. The the difference between deportation and transfer is deportation is moving children or adults 
from one country to another um, uh, illegally. Um, the uh, transfer is moving them from one ethnic group or national identity to another. So they're often related, but they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, and Yuna, I was wondering if perhaps you could let us know a little bit what, what happens in the camps and the facilities. What have you heard from, from people you know in Ukraine? Thank you, Marie. And thank you, Nathaniel, first of all, for such an in-depth and very important and timely report that you've produced, because indeed this is the problem that kind of takes a backstage uh, behind all the atrocities that the world is witnessing that um, Russia imposes on Ukraine every day. We see deaths and injuries of many civilians. And yet this is the problem that's probably of a similar scale and is definitely going to reach out into the future and will affect the future of Ukraine's future generation. And that's definitely something that we need to be looking at, even when we're talking about eventual reconstruction and recovery of Ukraine. Um, so thank you again. When it comes to the children who um, have been detained, who have been transferred or deported to Russia, as Nathaniel rightly categorized uh, those terms, I've I've spoken to some parents, and those conversations are very always heartbreaking. It's difficult to know what exactly happens because surely the children, when they return home, there's under such mental distress that they can't even grasp the full scale um, of what's happened to them. They can't really talk about many things until they undergo uh, mental health treatment and talk to therapists and get opened up a little bit. But so far, the stories have been quite grim from everything, but children being held in the basements um, without any real means for decent living. Obviously, no toys and nothing that they could bring with them, uh, depending on age, of course. Um, when they're being kept there, uh, they have been many instances of physical violence. And if I also may re remind everyone who's listening, an absolute horrific fact um, that there's also children rape that's present in Ukraine during the war and the youngest victim goes as young as four years old um, who's a victim of rape by Russian soldiers unfortunately. Um, many children come back re-educated or at least those attempts have definitely been applied to them. They've been told all kinds of lies and, and deceits like their parents have died or have been killed. Uh, some children have been saying that their parents um, consciously gave up on them and escaped wherever they've escaped abroad or mainland Ukraine and left them behind and don't ever want to see them, just like as a Ukrainian state who doesn't care about them, so they should just give up. Uh, Russia is their new home. They're going to find a new a lovely foster family, and this is going to be the great state that will take care of them. Um, in many cases, children have been told that there is no Ukraine anymore, or that the hometown where they come from, that it's been completely destroyed, so there's nothing to go back to. Uh, and of course, the most um, horrible examples would be when young uh, girls and, and boys would be recruited into these military training camps. And uh, there have been some instances uh, with 16, 17-year-old boys who desperately try to escape because they realize that as soon as they turn 18, uh, which was obviously coming very soon for them, they could be um, conscripted and, and sent to fight 
um, in the army against their own Ukrainians. So overall, those those poor children um, have undergone really quite distress, and it's certainly going to take some time to for them to recover mentally. But the first step is, of course, getting them back home into safety. Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, for the parents, it must be really, really awful too. Um, I mean, one of the reasons we started this project uh, about like more than a year ago about Ukraine is to understand the kind of war crimes that Russia was was committing or is committing in Ukraine and which ones constitute um, uh, crimes against humanity. So something I want to hear from you both is what is Russia's strategy behind these this uh, these abductions and eradication? Is it part of the eradication of, of Ukrainian identity that we're really seeing a pattern of? Perhaps uh, Nathaniel first. Uh, I think there's three objectives uh, that Russia is attempting to achieve with the uh, strategy around children. Uh, one, and, and most critically, is it's a PR move to rebrand the invasion uh, for a Russian domestic political audience. And the narrative that the Putin regime is pushing is that they are saving these children from purported Nazis and that Russia um, is doing its part on a local level uh, by taking these children in. And what you have to understand is that the word they use in Russian is patronage. And the system by which these children are moved financially really relies on local governments, sometimes at the city or regional level, uh, sponsoring children to come to uh, a specific area. And so while it's directed at the Kremlin level, the local level is really financially and logistically doing these uh, deportations and transfers. And our number one source of information uh, was the statements on VK and Telegram of these local officials, um, often providing us locate the camps because they were taking pictures with metadata at uh, bus convoys coming into these camps. And so the first objective is really a local focused public relations objective and marketing objective about the war. The second is this uh, really systematic effort to, particularly in Luhansk and Donetsk, but not only, to russify um, children, Ukrainian children, primarily from Russian-speaking areas. The third uh, and most, for me, chilling uh, element of, of this strategy is Russia is gaining leverage in any future prisoner negotiation or negotiation about the end of the war. Uh, people have often said to me, what's the worst thing that you think could happen in the war in Ukraine? Nathaniel, is it a nuclear weapon? Is it NATO getting formally involved? And I say to them, actually, pretty much the worst thing has already occurred, which is they've taken the children. And that hostage situation leverage element um, is becoming more and more clear in terms of what the Russians are doing publicly and in some cases privately. 
Thank you. Uh, Aluna, do you want to add something perhaps? Yes, I couldn't agree more uh, with everything that Nathaniel said. Um, Ukrainian children are sadly, of course, are going to be used as leverage in Russia's horrific game of war um, on an independent state, but also um, abducting and deporting children is, of course, one of the crimes against humanity. It is a war crime and the um, OSCE report um, under the Moscow mechanism has also made a statement and, and produced the report of their own uh, stating clearly that deportation of Ukrainian children is a crime against humanity according to international humanitarian law, that they're breaking UN Convention on the Rights of the Child regularly, they're violating the Fourth Geneva Convention with those actions. So certainly there will be... Um, an element of repercussions for Russian Federation. And we've already seen that uh, with ICC uh, granting a warranting um, arrest warrant against Putin. Um, and uh, their children ombudsman, Charles ombudsman in, in Russia. So that is definitely something that's already internationally recognized. But of course, abducting children also has a genocidal element to it. And we've seen that this war invoked in Ukraine by Russia does have a genocidal nature, um, certainly by not just destroying uh, civilian infrastructure and leaving civilians um, even cold in, in the middle of winter on uh, the brink of survival. Uh, it's not just the war um, of two armies, it's the war on the whole country and its civilian population. We've seen the attacks on Ukrainian culture, language, museums, libraries uh, were getting destroyed. Um, our cultural and historical heritage is at risk. And of course, children um, and abduction of children if, is one of those um, elements of genocide against nations. So I think it's also just a matter of time until that gets investigated and all the facts are collated and it is going to be recognized as a genocide um, against Ukrainian nation. Yeah, yeah. And and speaking speaking of um, the ICC that issued um, arrest warrants against um, President Putin and uh, Russia's Children's Rights Commissioner, including for the unlawful deportation of, of, of children. Um, what kind of signal do you think does it send to, to the world and what does it mean for international justice as well in general, especially that, that focus on children? Perhaps Nathaniel first or Eliana first, whatever you want. Eliana, <laughs> uh, go for it. Um, thanks, Nathaniel. I think it definitely sends a very clear signal that even though many international bodies have proven to be a bit ineffective in this war globally, just because no one's really expected uh, the war to start in the middle of Europe in, in 20th, 21st century, um, the rules will, were laid out after the Second World War, uh, but they haven't really been laid out for modern warfare, including um, some elements of hybrid warfare that we're seeing regularly these days. So the war is completely new, it's novel, um, it's got new tools and mechanisms, and therefore the ways to tackle them also need to be improved and modernized. Um, but I think amongst all the uncertainty within international organizations, especially, for example, the UN Security Council, which almost 
lost its effectiveness and definitely needs some strong reforming and rethinking of how it functions. Um, the international crime um, in court uh, decision was very timely and it definitely signaled that international law still works. Um, you still need to abide by it. There are no exclusions and no impunity for anyone who crosses the line. Of course, it is the matter of time to collect all the facts, all the evidence um, that needs to be collected in order to make a certain decision. But I think it was a great signal uh, that was sent to Russia that this is only the beginning um, because the, the facts uh, were available to be collected. But many more uh, similar decisions are yet to come and impunity is just not an option. What I was really impressed by in terms of the ICC indictments on the children's issue is that they moved very conservatively. They could have indicted the higher crime of a crime against humanity, but they uh, specified the deportation and transfer and the focus on Putin and Lvova Belova. I thought it was really smart in terms of setting the table, uh, building off uh, what Eliona said is the, it, this is not the last indictment. This is the first one. And this was about setting the table for, I think, what's to come. And in most cases, you'll often see the opening indictments in a war crimes investigation uh, being about the lower level of officials and working up. And in this case, they uh, started from the top, and I think they're going to go the opposite way, which is work down. And it really speaks to what is so unique about this case is that the Russians have clearly admitted to it and provided the inculpatory evidence um, in a detailed format um, publicly. Uh, 48 hours after our report came out, Putin and Maria Lvova Belova had a press availability where they had a conversation sitting across from each other at a table. Uh, the main focus of that in the media had been Lvova Belova's comments that she had become the mother of a Donbass child and adopted a 15-year-old boy. But in that clip, they talk about the, quote, success of the pilot program for Ukrainian military training uh, of training of Ukrainian children at camp called the Mountain Key. And um, Putin says we will expand that with an additional 2,000 um, Ukrainian and Russian boys. And um, so you have this unique opportunity from an indictment perspective where they are clearly admitting to the crimes and saying they are going to double down on these crimes. And, and that's very unique. If we look at the case of Srebrenica um, in the war in the former Yugoslavia, a lot of what happened in that case was about efforts by Mladic and others to conceal intent, to conceal that they had done this crime. And so an entire forensic element was needed to show that, in fact, they had intended, they had done this, they, their concealment was able to be detected. Here, they're not only admitting to it, but Russia is doubling down 
at every point since the indictment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think yeah, that's an important point actually. Um, and perhaps speaking of of international institutions, and and Maria uh, um, uh, Lvlova Belova, she recently told the UN Security Council that Moscow is coordinating with international organizations to return um, Ukrainian children to their families. What what does it say about our international institutions, the the UN Security Council, for example, that the commissioner took the stage to spread this information and propaganda? Perhaps Leona first. Um, thank you, Maria. I think it says a lot about, again, the need to reform uh, the United Nations and especially the United Nations Security Council, um, as I've mentioned below, because also the ultimate aggressor who's waging war on a sovereign independent state uh, right now uh, was chairing the United Nations Security Council, which is meant to preserve peace and stability in the world to sustain that peace. They were the ultimate aggressor. So it absolutely made no sense. And therefore, the founding members of the UN need to be reformed, to say the very least. But there definitely needs to be set out another approach and uh, the new ways to function within the United Nations and um, how the decisions are being made and especially who they give the platform to. Because obviously, we've seen her Uh, spread Russian propaganda again. Of course, they will say that they're working with international organizations, but I think we're all used to Russia's propaganda and deceit by this point, uh, that no one really listens or pays attention to what they're saying. Similarly to that, we had Russian Minister of Foreign Affairs speaking at the UN Security Council also saying that it's not Russia waging war on Ukraine, that it's NATO states, the United States and United Kingdom and the likes who are waging war on on Russia. So it's a complete distortion of reality and, and disinformation that no one really needs to listen to. But of course, United Nations, after this war is over, I appreciate that perhaps that platform needs to be kept to have at least some sort of dialogue. Um, but their reform is definitely way overdue. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think what's really interesting here is that uh, when you talk about the war in Ukraine, you have to talk about precedents from World War II. The first uh, case brought at Nuremberg, Nuremberg I, was about the Germanification of Jewish children by the Nazis. And you read that case and it's almost in many ways identical to the systematic and industrialized effort to change the national and ethnic identity of these children. You could just, you know, switch the names out. Um, But the, what's interesting here is that as that period that was mentioned before in the conversation after World War II, really is the, the, you know, cauldron from which the forge from which our normative frameworks for good and for bad in institutions um, have come out of, I think Ukraine will prove to be a similar um, turning point and really genesis point for the next generation of international norms and institutions. I'm already seeing that happen. And we can talk a lot about the bad news out of 
elements of the UN, but let's also talk about some of the good news out of the UN is that we have a commission of inquiry report um, that is um, very clear um, to the Human Rights Council that what has occurred um, are gross mass atrocities. And the, the fact of the matter is that for every element of UN system that has not worked here, there are elements that have. And so the question is, how, how do we strengthen and heighten those? And how do we uh, get the political will globally to do the reform that Eliona was mentioned, particularly around the Security Council, which is the stickiest wicket in the world? Yeah, I mean, I mean, and we, when we started this project, we were actually quite impressed by the level of, in a way, transatlantic or, um, you know, efforts to to uh, make, more, you know, to bring justice already and to, to launch investigations. And, you know, last week, the uh, the OSCE published a new report on Russia's deportation of recurring children, saying that it may amount to, to crimes of against humanity. So maybe there is hope that some of the masterminds or these organizers of this, this you know abduction uh, will, will face justice but but as one, one question one last question question to the both of you that you know I want to bring it back to the to the children and to the families um are there uh, Ukrainian and international agencies and charities who are trying to help the parents find their children I know some of them came back recently but it's only uh you know just a few is there hope that these children will find their families in again and come back to to ukraine um i can talk to ukrainian organizations and the initiatives and the steps that ukrainians are trying to take to um recover and retrieve all of their children bring them back home it's not an easy process and it's extremely difficult to even identify children who have been abducted and deported or transferred. Um, Nathaniel, I think, mentioned 16,000 um, children uh, that have been transferred or deported. Uh, the latest number I've uh, read in Ukrainian uh, media in um, the relevant ministry was quoting 19,393 children that are currently officially um, recognized as abducted or transferred, but basically kidnapped by by Russians. So that's a horrifying number, and only 364 have been returned thus far. And that's taken, mind you, that's taken over a year um, to establish a mechanism, first of all, to find those children, second of all, to um, make them come back home, to bring them back. Because while the teenagers and, and children who perhaps have access to telephones or know how to use social media and let their relatives um, or friends in Ukraine know where they are, even if they've lost contact with their parents, um, there are children who are way too young, um, who are basically infants also as it's an established fact that 
they've disappeared or gone missing and uh, that number is unknown and of course their children might never be retrieved and or found and brought back home because there is simply might not be a way that they will even know that they were Ukrainian and they were taken from the occupied territories by Russians. So that is an extremely sad and, and terrible reality. Um, there are several um, civil society bodies and, and NGOs in Ukraine who are putting the effort into that. Um, I think the, the whole effort is led, of course, by the Ukrainian child ombudsman and the first lady of Ukraine is overseeing that issue firsthand. Um, she's met with Ursula von der Leyen, who's the um, head of EU commission, um, to talk about mental health and recovery of children after the war, the ones who've been wounded, who stayed in Ukraine, and then the ones who come back uh, from effectively Russian captivity. So that is a tremendous effort. But just to quote um, President Zelensky, as, as he was uh, talking to international media recently and answering a question on this topic, he was saying that there is simply no established effective mechanism on a global stage that would allow us to facilitate this process and to make it as quick and effective as possible. There is simply no way, um, no established kind of route that everyone can go in order to get our kids back. So, of course, I guess it is definitely up to us and, and putting all the efforts that the Ukrainian authorities in conjunction with its partners and allies and negotiating with Russians can do um, to try to bring all of our children back, or at the very least, as many as we can find. Thank you. What um, people need to remember is that the Geneva Convention lays out a specific set of four steps that Russia or any occupying power needs to take when they come into contact with children from the other party to a conflict. And the first step is registration. The second step is allowing access to those registered children, um, like they were POWs, um, to the Red Cross and other international monitors. The third step is moving the, those children basically to a third party neutral country. And the, the fourth step, which can occur throughout the process, is allowing them to call their families and to call the national authorities of the, the country that they're from. Not only has Russia not done those steps, they have actively tried to prevent those steps from happening. And so to Eliona's point that there is not a, a clear route about getting these kids back, well, it really starts with the fact that Russia has not done the basic registration step with the Red Cross that it's required to do under the Geneva Conventions. And so the, the way I, I describe this moment is where, like in a, uh, a trauma case in an emergency room, we're in the golden hour um, with these kids. And the golden hour is slipping away, meaning that, it, as Eleona pointed out, that if we do not get them registered now, uh, especially for those kids like the evacuees that are getting um, transferred through judges in Russia and get new names, new passport numbers, new social identity numbers, um, they're slipping away. And I worked on 
cases in, in Guatemala where we had to use DNA identification decades later to reunite children who had been put into the American adoption system illegally um, with their surviving family members. And I don't want to see that happen here, especially since, as also Eleona pointed out, we're talking about infants from four months of age to 17-year-old kids. And so time is of the essence. And it, it really comes down to this registration element, because in s some of the, the cases of the groups of kids we're talking about, we don't have a baseline to even estimate how many kids we're talking about. And the, the last point I want to make here is that um, th there can be an understandable feeling of hopelessness about this issue. Um, but look at where we're at. Um, we have only really been focusing globally on this since February. And we're about three to four months into the mission here in terms of sustained focus. We have had an OSCE meeting. We have ICC indictments. We have the beginning of a registration process trying to come together. We have an EU summit meeting coming up. Um, it's not sufficient until every kid is back. But what I'm saying is that I've never seen a level of international speed um, on an issue that I'm seeing now. It's the fastest single response to a human rights report I've ever seen. Um, that's not good enough. But um, we have to understand that we're moving, we're moving fast. We need to move faster. Now, I think at the time where there is a loss in, in you know, in, of, of confidence and trust in institutions, I, I think that's that's a good point. Um, Nathaniel and Alonia, uh, Aliona, I really want to thank you for for participating in this Twitter Spaces uh, discussion. And as I mentioned at the beginning, we'll transform this into a podcast because I know there were a lot of questions yesterday asking if if people could catch up on this after people couldn't join now. So thank you very much to the both of you for, for joining us today. Thank you, Marie. And again, thank you, Nathaniel, for all the work, the most important work that you do. And most, most importantly, the very reassuring comments at the end. It does give us hope that the international community is, is on the case and will not hopefully let any child get lost. <laughs>